We've just started a study through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16 to 32. And I'm going to read that in just a minute. Um, As I was reflecting on uh, the tone of this text, I was reminded of a time that I flew into Winnipeg a couple of years ago. I was speaking uh, in Winnipeg, so I went there. uh, I think it was uh, the gorgeous month of February, which is a wonderful time to visit Manitoba. Uh, as it was minus 50 and I just felt the joy being sucked out of my soul like a low-hanging gray sky but anyways as I got there and I landed in the airport I got into a little rental car and I started driving to this uh, place called Winkler Manitoba which I think is like three hours or something outside Winnipeg and uh, as I started to drive I'd never driven in a in a kind of in a prairie province before and it got dark when I say dark I'm talking, close your eyes, fill in the spots with a black marker, fire that into space, you know, that whole Brian Regan joke. I'm talking dark, pitch black dark. It was scary because it was the winter and I was by myself and I was like, man, if anything ever happens, there is nobody out here. It was dark. And at the same time, the sky was incredible because I'd never seen stars like that in my life was tremendous. And as we come to Romans, the first chapter, in the same way that the brightness of the the stars piercing the pitch blackness of the sky is really striking, Romans 1 is a vivid picture of the darkness of the sin of humanity and the, the brightness of God's love, the brightness of God's grace, the brightness of God's forgiveness that pierces through with just tremendous brilliance. The apostle reflects on the darkness of the human condition to put it in stark contrast with the brightness of God's grace. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that humanity is without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
And humanity was filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Now, normally, in expositional preaching, you march through the text in order. But because we live in such a highly sexualized culture, and the conversations around sexuality and sexual ethics are so volatile, I feel that it might serve you if I make a few comments about the middle of the text and then go back and work our way through it. And so here's what I say, would say that I hope is going to be helpful so that there can be ears to hear the goodness revealed through the darkness of this passage. Now, first of all, if you're here today and you're gay and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that you are welcome here. I hope that after the service you join us for coffee and you hang out and you meet some people and you find us to be a very loving and warm community. And that as you are thoughtfully considering faith and considering the God of the Bible, I hope that you know you are welcome to be here and not only be here, but that you are to be treated with love and dignity. We hope to be a community that treats you with love and dignity. And I know I, I can't um, really apologize for the Christian community because I'm not their spokesperson, but if you have had the misfortune of being battered by the self-righteousness of someone who um, has not treated you with love and dignity, I want you to know that the call of the church is to not just be loving and gracious in this community and then hateful and judgmental outside it. Jesus Christ surrounded himself constantly with people who did not share his views, his ethics, his ideals, did not live the way that he lived, and the, the, the position, the posture, I'm sorry, the posture of Jesus Christ was of love and grace always. And so if you're here and you're gay and you're not a Christian, I hope you find us to be a loving and gracious community. And I also hope that if you have had the misfortune of having a Christian communicate to you that to, the way to be in God's good graces is to be straight, I need you to know that that is dead wrong. Here's why. There's only one way to become a child of God. There's only one way. And it's not your sexual orientation. Here's how you become a child of God. You believe in the perfect life of Jesus Christ. His perfect obedience. That he lived the perfect life that you are not living. You believe in the substitutionary, sin-erasing, guilt-destroying death of Jesus Christ who died for your sin. And you believe in the divine resurrection, signifying that the claims that he made to be God are true. And if you believe in the life of Jesus for your sin, the death of Christ, I'm sorry, the life of Jesus that was perfect, the life that you and I are not living, his atoning death and his divine resurrection, that he ascended to the Father, that Jesus Christ is the King who rules and reigns and you desire to live to his glory, you'll be saved. That's what saves you. Whether you're gay or you're straight, that's what saves you. So if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're gay, I hope that some of those things would be helpful for you to hear as I unpack this text. Second thing, maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you are gay. 
you're a Christian and you would identify that, that, that the, your orientation is that, your sexual orientation is that way. And here's what I'd say to you. The same grace that ushered in your rescue, just like the rest of us, is also increasingly empowering your renewal, just like the rest of us. For you to desire to bend your knee to the obedience of Christ, just like the rest of us, and to put off your sin, just like the rest of us. This passage, it gives a broad and all-encompassing commentary on sin. And whether you're gay or you're straight, we're all guilty of sin. And we need the grace of Jesus to cover our sin, and we need the grace of Jesus so that we can actually leave our sin and walk in increasing freedom from our sin. Romans 1, Paul is considering how the tyranny of sin has disordered the human heart how, in, in a myriad of ways that has led to the brokenness of the human condition. And he's doing this to shine a spotlight on what God has done for us through the grace of Jesus Christ, what God has done about it for, to address our condition. So I want to draw your attention to the parallel that's made in verses 17 and 18, where it says that God's righteousness is revealed and God's wrath is revealed. See, verse 17 says, tells us that God's righteousness is revealed because he gives forgiving and empowering grace in the gospel. And then verse 18 tells us why we need the grace of the gospel. We need it because we suppress the knowledge of God. So we're going to ask this text really three questions this morning as we work our way through it. The first question is, why do we suppress the knowledge of God? The second question is, what does it look like to be under the judgment of God? And the third question is, how do we experience renewal by the grace of God? So first, why do we suppress the knowledge of God? We were created in God's image, but we want a God in our image. So we suppress the knowledge of God. We suppress the knowledge of God because that's how you get to keep your autonomy. That's how you get to stay in control. You suppress the knowledge of God. When you look at verse 20, it says that no, one's, no one is without excuse because God's existence and God's majesty is clearly seen in nature. Clearly seen in nature, the text says. It's provocative language. God's not hiding himself. For example, um, I was reading a book last year by uh, Francis Collins. He's the... Uh, He's a gentleman in charge of the Genome Project, you know, decoding DNA. He was put in, in the head of the project back in 2000. And uh, he wrote this book called The Language of God. And in it, he says this. He says, uh, the human genome con consists, uh, it's the hereditary code of life. The text consists of three billion letters. And if you read the code of human DNA at three letters a second, it'd take you 31 years to read it, day and night. There are five physical constants that precisely, you know, kind of keep everything tuned so that intelligent life is even possible. They're orderly. They're not random. You know, God's not hiding himself. There's a physicist named Freeman Dyson. <clears throat> he says, the more that I examine the universe and the details of architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known that we were coming. Even the late Stephen Hawking back in the 80s wrote a book called uh, Brief History of Time. And he said, even if there's one possible unified theory, it's just a set of rules and equations. The question is, what breathes life into the rules and the equations to make the universe possible? The overwhelming impression is one of order. The more we discover about our universe, the more we find that it's governed by rational laws. You still have the question, why does the universe bother to exist? 
If you like, you can define God to the answer to that question. You know, modern science, Romans is saying, we, no human has excuse to not look at the world in which we live and see the majesty of God. Modern science, by its own definition, is observable and repeatable. Modern science functions on the basis that you're expecting to find order. And so Romans 1 is jarring because what it says is, left on our own, apart from God's grace, we would rather medicate ourselves with activity and academia and toys and busyness than worship God. Because if you worship God, you lose your autonomy and control to be God. So we suppress our knowledge of God. And where does that lead? Verse 21 tells us where it leads. Verse 21 says, futile thinking in dark hearts. And again, that's, that's, that's insulting. This is Kitchener-Waterloo. We've got universities here. Many of you here are, are, are uh, you know, educated. And, uh, and when I say that, I mean, you know, really passionately pursuing, uh, you know, academia. This is, we kind of live in quantum, uh, you know, valley here in Waterloo. And it's insulting to be told that your thinking is futile. It's insulting. But what does this mean? Well, there's a, a, an author and apologist named uh, Glenn uh, Shrivener in the UK, and he gives a great example of how our minds can be futile even though we're very intelligent. And he, and, and, and he tells a little story called Bet, Betty the Botanist Gets a Rose. And Betty the Botanist has this guy who works in her office, and he's, he's really attracted to her, and he's, and he's, and he, and he's, and he's wanting to, to, to express his feelings to her. So John gives Betty a rose. And Betty says to John, oh, thank you so much for the specimen. I put it under a microscope, and I found an ecosystem on the leaves, and I matched the genome. It's the first of its species. And there's these pharmacological properties that are going to help us aid in the fight against Alzheimer's. Oh, John, thank you for the specimen. And John says, the specimen? Betty, I gave you a long stem rose on February the 14th. Do you know what this means? Well, in one sense, Betty knows what the rose is better than anybody else. But in another sense, she has no clue. Because the rose isn't just a specimen, it was a communication of love. Well, what if this world, which Romans 1 is arguing, that this world is a communication of love? It's a specimen that as Christians we get to study it under a microscope, and we love to do that because faith and reason aren't, aren't having a battle with each other. So the world is a specimen, of course, that can be studied, but it's also a communication of love. And Romans 1 says, we have no excuse as we look out on this. And so, notice where God's anger is, is, is directed. He creates this cosmos and an expression of his love. And then verse 21 says, his, his anger is directed towards those that don't honor or worship or give thanks to him. And on the surface, it could be like God's wrath is, pour, is poured out towards this idea that you're not giving him thanks. Like, you're just rude. Does God have an ego? No, God's not needy. We have a Trinitarian God that was quite satisfied and fulfilled before he created anything. He didn't create us because he needed anything. In the same way that, you know, we had a baptism this morning. It's not like Greg and Jordan looked at each other and they said, you know, we've got a lot of work to get done around this house. We should have children. That's a great idea to get work done around the house. Right, parents? You know, that's not why God had his children. And so what, what's going on when God's wrath is poured out is he's looking at those who deny his existence who claim self-sufficiency, and it's plagiarism. You know, plagiarism is a big deal, right? I remember when I was work, doing my master's work, uh, every, uh, in seminary, every time you went to write a paper, they'd send you an email, you know, with, with the, uh, for the course you're about to do with the syllabus, and in bold letters at the beginning, it was like, oh, and by the way, remember, you plagiarize, you're kicked out of school. All of you understand this. You can't just plagiarize. Why is it such a big deal? Why does it invoke 
such a reaction. Because, to not plagiarize, I'll quote Dr. Timothy Keller on this. As I was, as I was looking at, uh, at his work, and I was thinking, that's really good. I'm going to say that. I might not tell him that Tim, no, I'm just kidding. So what Dr. Keller says about this is it's claiming self-sufficiency. You're denying that you're actually standing on the shoulders of someone else. You're denying the fact that you're actually totally dependent. And you're claiming to be self-sufficient. And that's why they find out you plagiarize and you're out. And so God is looking down after creating the cosmos and spinning it into existence in his great love. And then he looks upon those of us, we all were this, these people at one point, and he looks at those who claim self-sufficiency and its divine cosmic levels of plagiarism and his wrath is poured out to deny God and to live self-sufficient as though you are God. You see, you have to breathe the air that God perfectly mixed and you've got to use the mind that God majestically fashioned and you've got to speak through the vocal cords that God creatively formed to deny him. And so where does all this denial and the suppression of God go? Where does it go? Where does it lead? It doesn't lead to a life of no worship. It leads to a life of futile, exhausting, unsatisfying worship. That's where it leads. That's how this text kind of flows out. When you read verses 22 to 23, it says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling the, the, the mortal man. See, if I reject that I'm made in God's image, then my life will revolve around a God in my image. And we can do that a thousand ways, and many of us have done it a thousand ways. See, what's attractive about creating the God in your own image is you get to set the terms, you get to be in control. But it's, in the end, it's not liberating, it's exhausting. Right? If the God that you worship agrees with all of your thoughts, and the God that you worship endorses all of your, uh, everything you say, and the God that you worship applauds everything you do, guess what? You're not worshiping the God of the Bible. That's build a Bible. You know, and uh, this passage reveals the inevitability of idolatry. That there's really only two options, the creator or the created thing. There's no possibility of not worshiping. Maybe you're here and you're agnostic and you're saying, well, I disagree. You can be, if you're a person of, of non-faith, then clearly you don't worship. Well, here's the argument that Romans 1 presents that I'm going to echo. You see... We are all purposeful beings, right? We're, we're, we're telic. We are living for something. See, even the people who say there's no God and life, life came about for no reason, for no purpose, don't also say, so therefore, you know, do whatever you want because life has no purpose. There's a radical disconnect between the idea of life having no purpose but then living on purpose. Everybody is living on purpose, Worship is not singing. Worship is centering. The reason for millennia the people of God have been people who do singing is because the singing reorients us to centering. Worship is centering. It's orbiting. It's arranging your whole life around something. And so Romans 1 is saying if you don't put God at that epicenter, something is going to absolutely be at the epicenter. So which leads us to the next question. What does it look like to be under the judgment of God? Because it flows from this, 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 uh, this problem of rejecting the image of God and then kind of creating gods in our own image. And then it gets to judgment. So what does it look like to be under the judgment of God? 
It looks like being given over to what you want. It's not fire and lightning bolts from the sky. It's being given what you want. That's how the text plays out. That's what Paul says numerous times. God gives them over. Gives us over. Look at verse 24. Uses the word lusts. Often the word lust is associated with, I mean in our thinking, it's associated with sex. But not in the Greek. In the Greek language, the word for lust is epithemia. Epithemia means uh, we don't have like a, we don't have like a one word translation for it, so we say lust and you think sex. But epithemia means it's this all encompassing super desire that's like driving you. Just it's like if you're not thinking about something, if you're not doing something productive, your mind goes to it. It's like you automatically it's just all consuming epithemia. There was this show on TV in the early two thousands called Smallville. It's about Superman as a teenager. Now, if you don't know about uh, Smallville, that's okay, but it was the greatest, you know, non-canon iteration of Superman as a teenager ever created. And if you don't know who Superman is, then maybe this isn't the church for you. So, (laughs) so, in Smallville, the way it begins is the meteor shower that that brings uh, uh, Kal-El to the planet hits, and people get infected. And what the kryptonite does to all these humans who get infected is it brings out what's already in there. And so everybody's got their dark, unevangelized corners of their heart, the sinful parts of their heart. And then season after season, it's just meteor freaks who, who now, the thing that was in them is now, there, is, is now come out in a super-powered way. And that's what the Greek word epithemia is. It's having your desires drive you in a superpowered way. In such a way that your mind will justify what your will is up to because your heart has already chosen it, right? To, to borrow from Thomas Cramner. Since I said a thing about plagiarism earlier, now I feel compelled to put a footnote after every sentence I make, which is a really hard way to preach because I don't have any original thoughts. This is a very crowded pulpit, P.S. Okay, so when you get to... Uh, when you get to this over-the-top desires, it does include sex, of course, and the, and the text goes there, which I'll get there in a minute, but it's not simply talking about sex. It's, it's not simply wanting something. It's elevating that to the ultimate thing, arranging your life around that thing. So when you get to verse 24 and 27, Paul gets graphic, and he starts writing against sexual sin. And, you know, I, I need you to know that he's not centering out the homosexual sex. He does speak to homosexual sex, but... He's, he's not giving a free pass to every form of heterosexual sex. Because when you get to verse 20, see, verse 27 speaks to homosexual sex, but verse 24 is a broad sweeping comment about heterosexual illicit sex. Okay? And so the reason why this is, this is really important for us to understand, particularly in today's culture where, where uh, this is such a volatile and controversial subject, is that the context of Romans 1, broadly speaking, is that whether you're gay or you're straight, if you deny God, you're still going to worship something as God, right? If you deny that there's a creator who ordered the world, you will order your own world. If you deny you're made in God's image, you will live by ideas made in your image, driven by passions in your image, and in this specific example, pursue sexual relations with those who are in your image. Right? So Paul speaks to the homosexual uh, sex as an act that is sin. 
But it's in a very broad... If you've read all of Romans 1, and I just read it, if you've read it, he's not centering them out. He's, he's not centering out the homosexual. He's including the homosexual with all the heterosexuals because we all need the same thing. The forgiving grace of Jesus and the renewing work of Jesus, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that we can live to the glory of the one who ordered the universe. Because logically speaking, doesn't that make sense? That if there is a divine creator, he has a divine... He has a divine order. And all of us, in some way, gay or straight, are going to be conflicted with something that God would order that isn't what we want. And so we ultimately then need to bend our knee. But how do we do that when, when at our core, that's not actually what we want? We don't want to bend our knee. We don't want to be conformed to God's image. We want a God in our image. So this was as controversial the day that Paul wrote it as it is today. Because Paul was a cultured Roman traveler. Paul was very aware of, of loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships in ancient Rome. He was very aware of it. Right? There's arguments today that says, well, it doesn't mean that, it means this. And there, I, I know the arguments, I've read the arguments, I'm not going to take time. Now, if you're really interested and you want to talk about Greek, we can do that after the service. It's really not that exciting. But the point is this. It was just as controversial the day that, that Paul wrote it as it was today. He was aware of, of those relationships, and yet this word that Paul chooses to use, chooses to use is, uh, is uh, paraphusin, which means against nature. Now, what we find when we read Romans 1, regardless of our sexual orientation, is all of us, when we disobey God, when we, when we sin, we are acting against nature. Did you read the past? See, what happens with this text is people read the whole thing. That's why I had to make the earlier comment I did before. Because you read the whole text, basically forget the entire text because it's 2019. We live in southern Ontario. So we just go, oh my goodness, let's talk about this subject of, of homosexual and heterosexual sex. But we've, and then we lose the forest for the trees. I'm going to get to that later because it, what it does is it causes for all of us to see how lost we truly were and the goodness of God's grace, of what God has has done as a result of this predicament, right? All sin in every form is against nature. It's against the loving, wise order of our creator. So Paul starts to speak about sexual ethics because it's a vivid image of wanting something in your, uh, of wanting something in your own image. When Jesus spoke about marriage in Matthew 19 and he described it as a union between a man and a woman, the scriptures teach that all sex outside marriage is a sin, right? Again, whether heterosexual sex or homosexual sex, the aim of this chapter really is to show that the human heart is an idol factory, right? Where we're supposed to reflect on it and repent of our many gods and, and look at the freedom that's available for us in God. Now, because we're reading Romans... The image that we're discussing right now is sex. But you want to know, you know, we're conveying, what Paul is doing is he's using sex to talk about idolatry. That's what's going on here. But if we were in Colossians, we wouldn't be talking about sex. We'd be talking about money. How you constantly, a money's your idolatry. You're constantly spending your money to fill the hole in your soul that's stupid deep. Or you're not spending your money. You're squirreling it away and saving your money because you think that's what's securing your future. So either way, money's an idol. You can't stop spending it or you can't stop hoarding it because you're trusting in it. Right? 
If we were in Colossians, then, then we would all be uncomfortable because when you talk about uh, money and, and, and giving money away uh, t- for purposes in the city or for those who are in need in your families or to relatives or, or in the church for the, the work of the gospel, that's the conversation we'd be having if we're in Colossians. If we're in Galatians, we wouldn't be talking about sex. We wouldn't be talking about money. We'd be talking about our good works. All your trusting in your good works, all of your religious rule keeping, you think that's saving you? Your religious rule keeping isn't saving you. Christ alone is saving you. And we'd be having that whole conversation. So Paul is using this to convey how our hearts are an idol factory. When you get to verse 28, it says that he gave them over all, you know, he, he gave humanity over to what they want. And what could be more just than that? His judgment looks like saying, okay, you get what you want. In the end, everybody gets what they want. You want eternity with God. You want to be raised from, from death and enjoy the new creation, that all sorrowful things are destroyed, all glorious things are restored. You want that? You place your trust in Jesus? That's what you get. You want an eternity? You, want it, you, you, you hate God? You want an eternity apart from God? You want anything to do with God? I can't serve that kind of a God. I just, I'm good with the finality of death. That's what you want? Well, that's what you get. God gives you over to what you want. The author and apologist C.S. Lewis said it this way. There's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. That's what Romans 1 is pushing us to see in verse 28. God says, okay, well, I'll give you over to what you want. And notice that the text doesn't say God's judgment will be revealed in future, future tense. Look at the text. It says it is being revealed. So even in the ancient world, when Paul wrote this, he's saying like it's, it's now being revealed in the present tense. He lets us clamor after our little, after our, our little gods, our little idols. And maybe you're here and you say, you know, this is a great sermon for new believers or people who might be visiting Redeemer who are considering Christian faith, who haven't placed their faith in Jesus. But Paul, I'm a very sanctified Christian. I've been saved for a very long time. In fact, my great, great, great granddaddy, you know, built the beams that built the church. And the, maybe you're here today and you say, this is great, but I've been a Redeemer for five years. I've been listening to you preach 200 sermons. You preach Jesus. This is really nice, but I don't have any idols. I don't have any addictions. Spoken like a true addict. Wow, you don't have any idols or addictions. This text is provoking us to consider our capacity for idolatry, our capacity for sin, so that we can be repentant, we can be reflective, so that our hearts can be liberated as we trust in the goodness of Jesus Christ, who not only saved you from your sin apart from your work, but has united himself to you so that by the power of the Spirit, you can walk free from your sin. And so, Paul gives us this. He works it out. If you read verses 29 to 31, I'm not going to reread them, but 29 to 31 encapsulates this kind of this, he's working out in a broad sense what it looks like to be driven by the relentless pursuit of our idols. Right? Our sin, it leads to the endless catalog of evil that we see in the world and in our lives. It, it leads to the breakdown of unity, the end of harmony, the brokenness of society, of our families, of our relationships. It, it's what leads to all of it. The reason why this list in verses 29 to 31 is so eyebrow-raising, it's so humbling, is because we, church, we're guilty of these things. See, the gospel... It humbles us to the ground because we realize how guilty we are. Because if you look at that list, you're going to find you've done most of the things on that list. But then it, it doesn't just humble us to the ground so we leave church, you know, dragging our knuckles in the dirt. It raises us to the sky because we're astounded at the grace of what we've been given, of what we have been forgiven from. 
In those verses, if you look at them, the apostle puts murder and disobedience to parents in the same sentence without batting an eyelash. Murder and disobeying to parents. Who in here has been disobedient to their parents? All of us. And Paul's like, yeah, I'm just going to put it, you know, greed. You can talk to a Christian and be like, because again, we read Romans 1, and it's like, oh man, boom, all of our eyes go on sexual sin. Well, it is, there is sexual sin, and that needs to be talked about, and I hope I was very clear there about the Bible's position and, and the church's posture, right? The position is that uh, there's any sex outside of the marriage of a, a man and a woman, the Bible calls sin. But our posture towards people is love, dignity, humility. Why? Because we're all in this list. God's not ranking the sin. We're guilty of it. And while it's true that sin does not have the same extensive impact, I'm sorry, the same intensive impact, it, it has an extensive impact. Like there's, things that, there's, there's things that we can do that have greater and lesser consequences. All sin doesn't have the same intensive impact. But all of us, if, if we recognize church, it has extensive impact. It has affected all of us. None of us are better than the other. So what that does for us, church, here at Redeemer, is it should create a culture of humility and not superiority because our minds are blown at the grace that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Love and compassion, not comparison. Because what Romans 1 teaches us is in Christ we're all alive and without Christ we're all dead. And that's the scandal of God's grace. It's the great leveler. And the good news is that God diagnosed us as hopeless without him, so he delivered us into hope through Jesus Christ by uniting us to him. And here's the final question as we close. How do we experience renewal by the grace of God? We are renewed in worship. When you look at this, again, it's not singing, it's centering. To worship something, right? To center on it. Romans 1 reveals we have a worship problem. We've always had a worship problem. The fall of man in Genesis 3 is a worship problem. The temptation is, hey, you don't need God, you can be God. Our parents say, yeah, that sounds good. We have a worship problem. We have a self, a misplaced self-love problem. And we've always had it. Our misplaced self-love has been nemesis since Genesis. It's been there. Now, we worshipped our way into the patterns and problems that come from idolatry. And by God's grace... We worship our way out. Listen to me carefully when I say that, because I'm not talking about rolling our sleeves up and trying harder. We worshiped our way into the problems and the patterns of idolatry, and by God's grace, we worship our way back out. We have a worship problem. And when you have a worship problem, your whole life will orbit around the wrong thing. And by God's grace, the same grace that saved you, forgave you. So that right now, even as you sit here, though in and of your day-to-day experience you're guilty, God looks on you and he says, you're innocent. You're my child. You've been clothed in Christ. His righteousness is yours. You're standing in a borrowed holiness. There is nothing left for you to do because Jesus Christ has done it all. And because you sit in that, by that same grace, he's doing renewal. And you worship your way back out. 
And increasingly and ongoing, ongoingly in our life, the Spirit does His renewal so that we can turn from our sin, whatever it may be in that list from Romans 1. And again, that's not even an exhaustive list. It's just there to get us to be reflective and repentant. Verse 25 says that God is forever praised. Amen. Well, who forever praises Him? See, that's worship, forever worship. Only the angels, and you get that when you read Peter's letter, only the angels. It actually says that the angels long to look at the gospel. You know what the word for long is? Epithemia. The angels lust to look at the gospel. It's the same word. It means they just can't stop looking at it. They can't get enough of it. They're amazed by it. They're, they're, and so you see, church, as you and I revel in the goodness of God's grace, as we center on it, as we look on it, we're healed by it. We're healed by it. We're restored by it. We're reoriented by it. Our hearts are quieted by it. Our minds are brought into rest by it. The goodness of the gospel, the power that this text we began in verse 16 says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. He's not ashamed of it. Ashamed could be translated offended. I'm not offended at it. I'm not offended by being told that I'm so sinful the Son of God needed to die. Because I also know I'm so loved he wanted to die. That's what it means to not be ashamed. I'm not offended when the scriptures tell me I need to bend my knee to the king. Because that king came down and he saved me. And I will, by his grace, live to his glory. We don't have a God who crossed his arms and said, Get it together, sinners. We have a God who stretched out his arms and died for sinners. We don't have a God who remained in the heavens and declared his disgust at our sin. We have a God who left the heavens and took away all of our sin. We don't have a God who sat back and just damned creation. We come and we worship our God who came in Jesus Christ and he wrapped himself in the dirt of his own creation. And he died on a cross and arose again to bring recreation. Like the stars pierce the darkness, the gospel of God's grace pierces through our darkness. Jesus Christ came and he entered our darkness and by his grace he has removed the guilt of our darkness and by his spirit he empowers you and I to continue to worship our way out out of our day-to-day darkness. We have been freed from worshiping our many messiahs that are incapable of, of, of saving and satisfying our souls so that we can actually worship Jesus, the one who by his grace brings rest, church, to your soul. Let's pray.